Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. Women in the Wilderness, Four Narratives of Spiritual Power with Dr. Aviva Zornberg is presented by the Sydney and Miriam Brettler Memorial Series 5780. All four lectures can be found at elmod.pardes.org. For other digital content, please visit us online. Erev Tov, good evening. Uh, my name is Alex Israel, and I'd like to welcome you all to uh, Pardes. We're really, really delighted to be hosting uh, Dr. Aviva Zornberg here this year for the, um, the lecture series. And I'd like to invite Dina or Dan to come and just to uh, talk a little bit about Miriam and Cindy Brettler, uh, for whom this series is named. It is with great pleasure that I welcome you to the opening of the fourth set of lectures in the Sydney and Miriam Brettler Memorial Series. This series, which started as the Hirschdorfer Kantrowitz Brettler Series that honored my grandparents and aunts and uncles, now continues per my father's wish in my parents' honor. Tonight, I am very pleased to welcome Dr. Aviva Zornberg as our guest speaker. But first, a few words about my parents, and I apologize to those who have heard these stories before. My parents, Sidney and Miriam Brettler, were the children of immigrants who arrived in the United States as part of the great early 20th century wave of migration from Eastern Europe. They grew up in very Jewishly oriented homes, and my father, Sidney, attended an after-school cheder. Decades later, he was still proud of his ability to recite Shnaim Ochzim and Elu Mitziot. My father took an intense interest in Jewish history and culture, manifested in his large book collection, some of which is now housed in the Paradise Library. His interest in Judaism and Jewish books was well known among his friends. That is how a set of the 1904 Jewish encyclopedia found in a friend's basement made its way to my parents' library. After making Aliyah, my father found an outlet for his thirst for learning at Paradise and in a small local Gemara Shiur. And as I've said on previous occasions, my father had a gift for asking his instructors penetrating or perhaps uncomfortable questions, and you can ask Alex Israel about that. My mother Miriam was a much beloved kindergarten teacher at PS 180 in Borough Park, Brooklyn. Her reputation as a teacher was such that some of the Orthodox families sent their daughters to my mother's class where they could be certain that the pretzels served at snack time would be kosher. She was also my brother Mark's, my brother is Mark Brettler, who's a professor of Bible at Duke University. She was his first Hebrew teacher. As I share the Brettler traits of curiosity and intense interest in varied aspects of Judaism, I am looking forward to this exciting series of lectures on biblical women. Thank the Paradise Institute for hosting this series and for enabling us to honor my parents with an event that I know they would have appreciated and enjoyed. Yehi zichram baruch.
Thank you, Dina. It's uh, an honor and a privilege to introduce Dr. Aviva Zornberg. Uh, I know for some people in this audience, she needs no introduction, but I know that there are some people in this audience for whom she does need an introduction, so please bear with me. Um, I first of all want to send regrets from Rabbi Leon Morris, president of Pardes, who would have liked to have been here, but he's only coming back from the States later tonight. Uh, Aviva was born in London, grew up in Scotland, where her father was rabbi and head of the rabbinical court, and he was her first and most important teacher of Torah. Uh, she holds a BA and PhD from, in English literature from Cambridge University, uh, taught English literature at the Hebrew University, and then decided to turn to teaching Torah. Uh, and what a blessing it has been for the Jewish people that she has turned to teaching Torah and writing Torah. Um, she has taught in many different places, taught at Pardes for many years, holds a visiting lectureship at the London School of Jewish Studies, uh, and she travels extensively and lectures not only in Jewish but also in academic and in psychoanalytic settings. Uh, her latest book was called Moses, A Human Life, and she's working on another volume uh, to complete her Breshit, Shmot, and Bamidbar, and that is the volume on Vayikra. This room is very familiar to Dr. Zornberg. She has taught at Pardes for many years. It's a privilege and an honor to welcome her back to our Beit Midrash. Thank you very much, David, for those warm words. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Uh, it is a pleasure to be back here. Um, before I start, I just want to plead for no questions in the course of my talk. Uh, afterwards, I will be around to talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, and I'll be very happy if you have questions and comments and want to discuss what came up in the story I want to tell. So that's my alibi. I'm telling a story, and therefore I don't want to be interrupted. Stories build up. Stories, they need to be allowed to have their own voice. And I'm going to be telling a particularly problematic, difficult, and I would almost say tormented story by way of starting our series. The series sounds very up. It's about, I think the, uh, I think the woman said, spiritual power. I think those are the words that I put into the advertisement. It's about the issue of four biblical heroines, women in the wilderness, and then I use the words spiritual power. And as the time got closer for actually giving the lecture, I began to wonder what is this thing, spiritual power? It's an expression that came to me at the time, and I think even now, when I have to face it, uh, I think it, it came to me for a good reason, that I really want to say something by it. But what exactly I want to say, not so easy to define. Is there such a thing as spiritual power? We know there's such a thing as cognitive power, intellectual power, emotional power, musical power, artistic power. There are all kinds of non-physical powers. But what is spiritual power? And I would like not to define it now, except just to tentatively say that it has something to do with the development of a power in resistance. 
It means having to face something or someone and to develop inner resources that are extraordinary in some way. And so if I'm going to talk about Miriam and the daughters of Tzlovchad and Ruth and Esther, in, who are such different women, I'm going to be looking in a sense for what is it that they have to go through? What is it that they face, that they confront? When it comes to the first two weeks, uh, my subject for tonight, Miriam, next week, the daughters of Tzlovchad, it's clear that in some way they are facing Moshe. When, we get, when it comes to Miriam, it's going to be an extremely complicated confrontation with a tragic or perhaps not so tragic ending. Benot Slovchad also are facing Moshe. Ruth and Esther, what are they facing? What are they confronting that develops in them a certain kind of power? And it's a power to change things. It's a power to change things in the world, even though it may not be expressed externally very clearly at all. It's not political power, it's not physical power. It's something that can be heard in the way they speak, in the tone of their voice, in the way people react to them. And it's something I want to leave as fairly undefined for the, for the time being. Uh, I have a sentence here from the French symbolist poet that I rather like. Uh, in, it does sound awful, doesn't it? It doesn't? In that case. Um, Paul Valéry, the, the symbolist poet, says this, one only reads well when one reads with some quite personal goal in mind. What does it mean to read a text well? So it's a very challenging notion. You read well when you're looking for something in the text. You have some kind of goal, not necessarily a concrete goal. It may be he says, to acquire some power. It may be that we read stories, we read texts, we read poems in order to acquire some power for ourselves. Some, something, a power that we otherwise perhaps wouldn't have. I find this very distracting. Thank you. Harold Bloom comments, that what that seems to mean is that when we read a poem, we look to make the poem part of our future. I read the poem and I want to have that poem become part of me and my future. Otherwise, he says, why read it more than once? I'd advise you, he says, don't read the poem more than once. That's, that's quite enough. If you're going to really read the poem, then it must be because in some way you want to take it into yourself not as a possession, but as part of you. Somehow you want to be changed by it. And you will acquire thereby some kind of indefinable power. A power that has to do with a matter of, of desire, of action, that I want to be able to do something in the world. That's as far as the reader is concerned. And we're facing a challenge tonight. If we have the, the spiritual power to in some way confront the story of Miriam, then perhaps we will be the gainers for it. What's so complicated about the story of Miriam? I'm going to begin at the end. I'm going to begin with a sad story of Miriam's, what can we call it, debacle. In some way, there's some kind of fall. She does something wrong. How does the story begin? Um, I'll read from 
chapter, chapter 12 in the book of, uh, of Bamidbar. It's the, the, um, you can see in number one on your page, Rashi taking some of the phrases and his comments on them. We'll get to that afterwards. So this is in the wilderness. That's how the story begins. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moshe. B Moshe. It's clearly that that's the B. It's an adversary B. They attacked Moshe. There's some kind of verbal violence going on here. Dibor B. And the striking thing is that although the two siblings both spoke against the third sibling, it's Miriam who is singled out clearly. The spotlight is on her. How do we know? Because of the verb. Vatidaber. So she is the one, it's feminine singular verb, right? which excludes Aaron actually, which is a way of saying that really the ringleader here, the leader of this, of this verbal onslaught on Moshe is Miriam. In what way is she different? What is this attack on Moshe? We are immediately alerted. It's very strange. We've been used to the people and throughout the book of Bamidbar, we will hear about this whole people constantly you know, complaining and rebelling. And occasionally we even have the expression that they spoke against God and, and against Moshe. Exactly the same expression. And there it's clear that it's very, very bad. That's, that's, that's not a good thing. And suddenly, in his own family, this is really quite shocking, in his own family, his two siblings gang up against him. There's no other way of putting it. Dibur uh, And then we also we want to hear what was it they said about Moshe. They talked about the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. Lakach means married that he had married an Ethiopian woman, and they are gossiping or slandering. or It's called Lashon Hara. That's the way the rabbis sum it up. They say that these two siblings, Miriam and Aaron, are now guilty of Dibara'ah, or Lashon Hara, slander, bad talk against Moshe. And there's something mysterious right away about that. In, a, in, in the holy family, as it were, in the, in the, in the, in the royal family itself, there is some kind of attack on the leader. Everyone else is attacking Moshe, but his own, his own brother and sister. And it's about, what is it about? And then it sounds as if we're in the world of legend, in a completely unrealistic world about the Ethiopian woman he had married. What? I've never heard of such an Ethiopian woman. He married an Ethiopian woman? Why have we not been told about this before? As far as we know, he had one wife, Zipporah. And it turns out that there could be some kind of supplementary wife that somehow became part of his household, and they are annoyed about it in some sense. They don't, they don't like it. And then in order to make sure you haven't missed the point, it's repeated. Because you know he did take, he did marry an Ethiopian woman, in case you're in any doubt about it. He really, he really did marry an Ethiopian woman. Perhaps we should read that as a kind of indirect quotation from Miriam and Aaron. That they are, this is what they are saying indirectly, that he married an Ethiopian woman. Uh, and we're left wondering, what is that all about? Now, so difficult is this sudden bombshell that you have extraordinary statements in uh, in, in some of the Mepharshim, in the Rashbam, for instance, who's the most pshat 
uh, interpreter of all, you might say, Rashi's grandson, who's really going to try and st stick to the text here and not to fantasize and not to do all the things that the Midrash does to torment the text. You know, it's very anti-Midrash. Um, and so what does he come up with? He comes up with a Midrash that I think you can trace, that Moshe, in his wanderings, when he ended up in Midian in his early life, he spent 40 years, somewhere there, there was 40 spare years, and he spent 40 years in the land of Ethiopia, where he married the queen and ruled the country for 40 years. It's just a slight omission in the Torah. You know, the Torah <laughs> just, just somehow managed to slip, slip, slip over that one. That's, and that's a pshat. <laughs> that's a historical suggestion. Right? It has all the, the authority of history there. Um, you'll forgive me if I run for refuge um, to Rashi. Because Rashi is unashamedly midrashic. Rashi, quote unquote, please don't quote me on this, this is just between us. Um, Rashi uh, plays fast and loose with the text here, more than at any other place that I can think of in the Torah. This is the most fantastic reading of a text that I think is anywhere in Rashi. Point by point. But before we get there, let's just take in the next verse. Continues. Vayomru. Then we hear it from their own mouths. What was it that Miriam and Aaron were saying against Moshe? Well, we've just been told indirectly by the, by the narrator. No, we're going to hear it now from them. What did they say? Harak ach Moshe diber Hashem. Did God only speak through Moshe? Gambanu diber. Halo gambanu diber. Didn't he speak through us too? Where's the Ethiopian woman? Suddenly, no Ethiopian woman. What, what are they complaining about now? It's very clear. We are prophets. We've had the benefit of God speaking through us, just as he has. Clearly, the emotion that seems to be underlying what they're saying is, what do you hear in it? Jealousy, Jealousy or envy, let's say. And I prefer the word envy here. Uh, envy, competitiveness, in some way they feel that he has, somehow Moshe has got beyond himself, that he's, he's, there's too much hubris in the way Moshe is behaving for some reason. And so they, they, there's clearly here, here we have a motive, a motive we can understand. But what has it got to do with the Ethiopian woman? You know, it's, it's a completely different story from the one that the narrator told us. So it's really shockingly fragmented here. Suddenly we have a sense of we're not on solid ground anymore. I don't even know how to read on because I don't understand what this slander was. I don't understand how the story starts altogether. Um, and the, the ver that second verse ends simply, Vayishma Hashem. And God heard. God heard what they said. And as a result of his hearing, things begin to move. What is it that God hears? And so now let's have a look at Rashi and see what Rashi, in his very non-pshat way, this is, this is a, a, a brocade of Midrashic sources, which stretch the limits of realism and take us into the intimacy of what Miriam's problem is. What is Miriam really saying? What is it that God really hears? And it's complex. Have a look at the beginning of number one. I'm just going to read it through rather quickly. Miriam is mentioned first, Vatidaber Miriam, because she opened up the attack. Therefore, she's put first. 
And how did Miriam know? Suddenly, is a, this is the question. How did Miriam know that Moshe had separated from his wife? I didn't hear that he'd separated from his wife. The expression is perash min ha'isha, separated from, the, from womanhood, which clearly means that he had, had under, he had taken on a celibate life. It doesn't mean he divorced his wife, but he had separated intimately from his wife. And from now on, we're going to be involved in intimate things, in things that shouldn't be published things that no one really should have known about. So the question that Rashi starts with in good Jewish style is, so how come Miriam knew about it if no one's supposed to know about it? It's a very, it's private stuff. And so you have a kind of very domestic feminine scene here that Miriam was standing beside Zipporah one day um, on the, at the moment when Moshe was told that Eldad and Medad, two people in the camp, had started prophesying, freelance prophesying, that, they, that two people were in some kind of frenzy in the camp. When she heard, when Sipora heard that, that, uh, that, 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 that these two men had been doing this, what was her immediate reaction in the intimate feminine group that somewhere she just happened to be standing beside her? What was her reaction? Oh dear, poor wives of those men. Oi, Nenishotem, Shel Elu. If they, if these men suddenly now are involved in prophecy, then woe to their wives. In other words, Zipporah is talking about her own experience. And she is saying, in a way that she perhaps didn't expect anyone to pick up on particularly, she is telling her about her own most intimate abandonment, that Moshe has abandoned her sexually. And when she hears that there are more would-be prophets, prophets in the people, all she can think of in terms of, of these terms, she thinks of this. She thinks that, oh, the poor women. And that's how Miriam gets to know something that she otherwise has no reason to know. And what, what does it do to her when she hears this? That's how Miriam knew, and she told it to Aaron. And even though Miriam didn't really intend to to Lignoto, she didn't really intend to, to impugn Moshe, she wasn't really attacking him. Nevertheless, she was punished. That is, it wasn't really a full act of aggression that she, 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 she made this statement. Nevertheless, um, it's a Kalvachomra, you can learn from this that, that someone who really does attend to, to attack someone else will be punished. So it's a kind of, if you want to know what the lesson of the whole story is, it's don't talk Lashon Hara, and that's your take home. Now, and you can go home now, you know, that's if you, that's the take. If, however, you're looking for some power, you're looking to understand something that you can make part of you, then you're going, you're going to have to enter into the complexity of what is going on with Miriam in this situation. So that's how the story starts, according to Rashi. What about that Ethiopian woman? And here I'll be a little cursory about it um, for the next, for, 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 for several lines here. What Rashi is concerned to say is that she was a beautiful woman. It's code language for a beautiful woman, ishakushit. We are not talking about some extra wife. We're actually talking about, what are we talking about? We're talking about his one lawful wife, whom he has not married, but actually separated from. So the words mean the opposite of what they seem to mean. Talking about codes, it says he took her, he married her. 
And what the hint is under the surface, what's repressed there, that no one's supposed to know about, is that though he had married her, he was actually not living with her. Right? So there's an oppressed meaning there. And the word lakach comes to mean the opposite of lakach, which is pirish, that he'd separated from her. There is, it's just exa exactly the opposite. Um, so this, uh, this, this code, encoded reading gives you the sense then that so obviously the Isha Kushit can't be a literal Ethiopian woman. It's a way of describing Zipporah herself. She is being called Kushit. On several different grounds, it means beautiful. And I'm not going to go into, into all the complexities of this. One has to do with gematria, and one has to do with the fact that when you want to, to compliment someone and you don't want to attract the ayin hara, yeah, you don't want to attract the evil, jealous forces. I don't know why jealousy and envy has a role in this story, as we're going to see. Uh, then you say the opposite. You say she's ugly. Um, sorry, you say she's an Ethiopian woman. That's one of his suggestions, that she's black. She's black, and therefore, what you really mean is the opposite, that she's beautiful. And, 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 and it's another way also of getting around to the idea that Zipporah was completely and un irreducibly beautiful. Beautiful inside and out. Why go to such lengths to say that? It's to say that there's absolutely no personal reason that Moshe could be separating from her, that, there's no re that he didn't have anything personal against her, that it was only because of his prophecy. Because he thinks himself such a great prophet that he can't live a normal sexual married life with his wife. Now that is the, that is the burden of Rashi here. That's, that's what Miriam is now very angry about. She says, God spoke through us too. So you see how Rashi is marrying the Ethiopian woman by retranslating it and the idea of we are also prophets. God spoke through us. And you see how the two are being brought together, and you see the logic of it, in a sense. That is, that Miriam is now saying, he thinks he is more special than we are, but we are prophets every bit as much as he is. God spoke through us, just as he spoke through him. And we don't have to separate from our, from our mates. He is putting himself in a class above us by, by this private act which we aren't supposed to know about, but which troubles Miriam considerably, even in its intimacy. It somehow gets at something very intimate in her. And that's the story that I want, I want to follow now. Um, okay, I think that uh, that's about all I want to look at now. You can, you can glance through the rest of it. Um, I just want to point out that when Sipora says, woe to the wives of these women, if they are niskak l'nevuah, niskak. Niskak is a, is a powerful word in Midrashic Hebrew. It means to be paired with, to, be, to live with. Let me, let, me, let me share the translations that I have here. To be attached to someone, to be coupled, to live with, to be in constant intercourse, to be involved, and I would almost say to be haunted by. If these men are involved in prophecy, almost as if they're involved in some kind of erotic attachment. To be in prophecy is to mean that you don't have space or mind for anything else. And that's why there's no space for living with your wife. It's an alternative attachment. And that's what Zipporah says. She puts it very clearly when she says diskakin. Yeah. It's the word you might use of a sexual, of a sexual attachment. It has to do with need. It has to do with inter 
interlocking, of, of, of inter codependence or something like that. Um, and so you have here a very passionate story. Moshe is so passionately involved with God. How do we know? Let me finish the sentence first. He is so passionately involved with God that there's simply nothing left over. There is a, it's all sublimated. And he knows, even before God told him, the Midrash has a lot to say about this, that he understands himself that he should not return to his wife after Mount Sinai, after the revelation at Mount Sinai. So let me just fill in a little bit here quickly. You remember before Mount Sinai, before the revelation, the whole people were told, that is, the men were told, al tikshu el don't separate from your wives sexually for three days before. And then afterwards, God says, now you all can go back home. Go back to your ohalechem, to your tents. And the tent is a code word for normal married life. So you all can go back to normal. But you, Moshe, amod imadi. You stay here with me. You stand here with me. And from this, Moshe understands that his own instinct is being corroborated that from now on he will not be living with his wife in a normal way. Now, suddenly, you have here a secret story. It's a repressed story, which goes a little bit against our grain as well. You know, we, we love to say, you know, the, the propaganda, you know, we love to say that Judaism is in favor of a full life, a full physical life. And, you know, it's certainly part of the truth, which isn't to say that asceticism is completely unknown in Jewish history. Right? So not to say that. Still, a prophet, a prophet shouldn't be able to live a normal married life? No, everyone else can, but not Moshe. And Moshe is justified by God for having made this intuition himself. And Miriam regards it as hubris on his part, that he's put himself a class above everybody else, even though no one else is supposed to know about it. Okay, is it more or less clear? Uh, up to now, maybe not very attractive, but, uh, but clear. Why is Miriam so concerned about this? Why is it really unbearable to her? After all, no one knows. It's not, it's not improving Moshe's profile, his public profile in the people in any way, the fact that he's separated from his wife. You know, people are not whispering, oh, what a pious man he must be. No one knows about it. But the fact that she knows about it is sufficient to rile her so deeply that she is willing somewhere, she's a willing to attack. I'll say her beloved brother, but it really goes much further than that. And the, I, now as a kind of tantalizer, you know, a kind of teaser at, at this point, I want to point to what seems to me to be the key to the relationship between Miriam and Moshe. What is their relationship? And it's in the letter Bet. Vatsidaber be Moshe means she spoke against Moshe. Gambanu diber Hashem, also in us, God spoke, doesn't mean against us. It means through us, in us. And there is the same prefix used in the same sentence yeah, to express two very different meanings. To be against someone, to speak hostilely against someone, and to be spoken through, to have, have the voice of God coming through you. And I want to be working my way. I'll just try to say a something now. It's not easy to say it without the material. 
I want to say that that's the complexity of Miriam's relationship with Moshe. She's both totally identified with Moshe. He is, as we will see, in some way her son. In a certain sense, he's not just her brother, but her son. And we're going to try to flesh that out. And at the same time, she is riled by him. She is, there's something about him in his very close identification that, that she feels uh, with him. There is something she can't bear about him. And what she can't bear, if I can put it in one word now and then try to, to flesh it out, has to do with the issue of difference. How dare he be different from her? How dare he be not only more than her, a greater prophet than her, but perhaps also a different, a different concept of a prophet. That his nevuah is different from hers. Now, in order to flesh all these things out, I go back to the beginning of the story, and I'll try to do it uh, rather quickly, um, although it's, it, it's difficult, because it's all in the details. Uh, you remember the story at, at the beginning. How, how does it begin? There went a man, Vayelach Ishmi Bet Levi, Vayikach et Bat Levi. A man from the house of, of Levi, Bet Levi, went and he, he took, married, a daughter of Levi. What does Rashi say on that? Again, it's the same logic. It says he married her, it means the opposite. Or almost the opposite. That is, Likuchim Shniim. He remarried the same wife. He separated from her, and then he remarried her. Are you familiar with this? Well, this material, I know some of you are. Is this, who is it new for? Just give me a sense of how much I'm shocking the audience here. Okay. Um, the idea being that Miriam, in her prophecy, right, where she is called Miriam the prophetess. When is she called Miriam the prophetess? Not when she's actually prophesying. When she's prophesying, the story is not there in the text at all. It's only in the Midrash. Later, she will be called Miriam the prophetess at the Red Sea when she sings her song. Suddenly, we'll hear she's a prophetess. Miriam Hanaviah, Achot Aharon, who was the sister of Aharon. What about Moshe? Miriam wasn't the sister of Moshe. You would think that would be the honorific. You know, she prided herself on that, no? But her prophecy took place. Right? This is the Midrashic reading, and it works very well, I have to say, once you have a chance to absorb it. Uh, she, her time of prophecy, her crisis of prophecy, was really a one-time thing was when she was only the sister of Aaron. And Moshe had not been born. And because of her, what is her prophecy? Her prophecy is what brings Moshe into the world. Because her father had separated from her mother under the persecution of Egypt and under the threat that all baby boys would be thrown in the river. Yes? And so her father, as the judicial head of the people, the Avbeit Din, as the Midrash calls it, that he is the head of the, of the Israel, Israelite court, he comes to a judicial decision that it's better to separate from our wives, and this becomes a, a, throughout the people, rather than give birth for nothing, lorek. That is to give birth only to go into the water. Rather than killing our children, better no children which is an eminently rational and you might say even moral decision. And Miriam protests. And she protests in the name of her prophecy that this child is going to save, save the people quietly, say it very quietly. But she uses a logical argument, a sort of logical argument. 
She says to her father, your decree is harsher and more effective and destructive than that of Pharaoh. That's a pretty startling thing to say to one's father. She is really taking a lot of license to talk to her father that way. You and Pharaoh, you're a fine pair, she's saying. He wants to destroy us and you want to destroy us. The only thing is, you are even more effective than he is because you are a tzaddik and he is a rasha. And your decrees, if your decree, right, a decree is something that cuts things apart. It's like ligzor, right? That creates a, a broken reality in a way, a different reality. You are separating, men are separating from women. That's, and when you say it, it's going to be more effective and more dangerous than all Pharaoh's feeble attempts because he's a, he's a Russia. He's a, he's a wicked person. We, we don't have to worry about him. And what do you know? Her father listens to her. Her father listens to her and reunites with his wife. And if we had time, I would like to go further into it. You know, why does he listen to her? After all, his decision was a fully thought out decision. What is she telling him that's new? And all I can say is that she is telling him perhaps the, the, the primal, the pri her primal instinct is at work here, that men and women should be together, that the sexuality of human life, the emotionality of human life should be there. Otherwise, it's not only a matter of having the children. It's not only that she's prophesying there's going to be the savior born. It's a more general statement that she's making. And he, he appreciates the ethical, what can I say, um, point, point of it, in spite of his own thinking, and he reunites with his wife. And that's why it says he married at the beginning. And we are supposed to know, of course, there's no way of knowing, unless we've, we've read the Midrash or Rashi, that this is a, a remarriage to the same wife, yes? that he has separated from her, as have everyone else. And then there's a kind of ceremonious, ritual remarriage ceremony that goes on throughout the, the ghetto, throughout the, throughout the Jewish area. So strange images here. Miriam is highly invested in the life of Moshe. What does she do? She stands there by the river. His sister stationed herself there. It's a very strange form of the word nitzav. To stand, could have just said, "Mitzvah, mitzvah." Yeah, she, she, she was there, but she stations herself there. There's something hitpael about it. This is this is how she's going to have power. Her power at the moment is a matter of waiting. She's going to wait there by the river. She's not giving up, and she's going to watch Ledea Mayeaselo to see what will be done to him. And Rashi's comment there is to see the end of her prophecy. She is living staunchly in the world of prophecy. That's, she's inspired by her prophecy that this child is going to, to do it all. And even though it doesn't look good at this moment, with a child in the river, just as Paro said, although in a nicely cocked box, but how much is that going to do for him? Um, doesn't look good. Nevertheless, she stands there to see what's going to happen to her prophecy. That is, she expects the prophecy to move towards fulfillment, even though it's dark days. Now, um, and then there's that word mirachok, which gets a wonderful twist. She stood afar. Why tell us that she stood afar? Can't really think of a good reason. Couldn't she stand close by, just passing the time of day? You know, why does she have to stand far off? 
And here the Midrash says, and you can see some of it on your page in number two. Uh, I don't know if I'll read it, but let me just give you the gist of it first. Mirachok means that she was distanced from her family, that her family had rejected her because of her prophecy. And the way it goes here, and I'll tell it, you can follow it in the Midrash, that when Moshe was born and the house was full of light, that's the beautiful Midrashic expression for this charismatic baby, let's say, there's this wonderful baby that, you know, might very well be what she said the baby would be. So that her father is very pleased with her and kisses her on the head and says, my daughter, your, your prophecy has been fulfilled. So everything's lovely. A father and a daughter, you have to sense the particular relationship of a father and a daughter. And how thrilled she must be to be not only a successful prophet, but someone that her father approves of. But then things turn dark, and they have to hide the baby, and they have to put the baby in the river. And then, according to this version, her mother, but according to other versions, her father, and I want to stay with that one because it works better for our purposes, uh, her father smacks her on the head, no more kisses, and says to her, my daughter, where is your prophecy now? You know, this child is bound for death. And that is why she is Merachok. She's not far from the river. She's far from home. That in some sense, she has been ostracized by her family because she is responsible for needlessly bringing this child into the world only to, to, go, into, to go into the river. And in spite of that, there she is in this, this really, I would call it a tormented situation. She knows that her prophecy is true. She knows that this is, this is part of the story, what's happening now. But it's not the end of the story. And she's waiting to see the end. But she's had to pay a severe price for her, for her role as prophet. And that is the price of being a daughter. She is no longer a beloved daughter to her father, which is a very precious role, I think, for many, for many women. Um, and her father is really, has shamed her, has thrown her out. There is a feeling somewhere that she's having to bear the burden of what can I say? Shall I generalize it and say, the woman of genius who is not understood by her own family? The woman who has things to say that are not intelligible to anyone else around her because she is so super talented, because she has access to some sources of knowledge or power? Yeah. And I think one can think in many fields of the effect of being over-endowed in some way for a woman certainly in a traditional society, and even when it has to do with the Word of God, or perhaps especially when it has to do with the Word of God, that the Word of God has come through her, and that gives her great joy and great satisfaction and great sense of purpose, but it's cost her dearly. And what she has for it now is this child. And this child, well, she talks very effectively to save the child. And here she talks in the text. She talks to, the, to Pharaoh's daughter, and she talks the daughter into giving the, the baby to, it turns out, to the mother, back to the mother for nursing, yeah, for, as, as a wet nurse. You all know the story, yes? Now, this is Miriam's cleverness, her way with the world, that she knows how to do all, kind, all kinds of things, and she is a speaker. So I would say, in the family constellation, Moshe is the non-speaker, yes? But he is the one who can't speak. Aaron, daber daberhu. God says about him, all right, he'll do the talking for you, Moshe, if you really insist that you don't want to. Um, daber yu daberhu, oh, can he talk? 
you know, meaning it's I think it's almost a slight humor in it. Meaning Aaron, no problem at all. He's a communicator. And Miriam, it turns out, is not described as a speaker, but you hear her talking. You hear how effective she is as someone who arranges reality. But what singles her out for those who are, know the Midrash is not just that she's a good talker, but that she's trying to achieve the fulfillment of a prophecy. And the prophecy lives in her and nowhere else. And everything she does then is in order to nurture her brother, in order to make sure he can survive in the best possible way. And in the end, yet another woman takes over. There are three women who take over in mothering their serial mothers for Moshe. Yeah? The real mother, Miriam, and the daughter of Pharaoh becomes Leven. He becomes a son to her, and she names Moshe. And she obviously feels that she owns Moshe as a mother does. Because I brought him to life. I brought him from death to life. That's like mothering. But I'm interested in Miriam for tonight. Miriam, I want to say, is in this strange, fraught situation, which is not a normal sister-brother situation. She's a prophet, and she's a prophet who insists that prophecy and, and uh, full sensual life can go together. Family life can go together and should go together. And these are values that for her are intertwined with each other. Perhaps for that reason, she is doubly upset at what Moshe, she suddenly finds out, has done in his resolution of the tensions of being a man of the spirit and a man of the flesh. You want to look at it like that. A Navi, the Navi of God, who somehow seems to have come to the, a different conclusion about the place of normal life in his life. That he can't, he is so specialized in his prophecy, in his, his prophetic role, that he, that, that he can't. Now, we'll come, we'll come back to that issue of Moshe's specialness. Uh, there's no way of avoiding it. But meantime, I just want to say, therefore, that when Miriam speaks against Moshe, B Moshe, it's always with a sense of identification. She identifies with this son-brother, this brother that she's brought into the world. She identifies so thoroughly that the B means both against and identified with. And it, the, the theme carries on when God makes his rather angry speech um, to the two siblings. And he says, he says, Lochen of Moshe. My servant Moshe is different from all the rest of you people. You, even if you are prophets, Moshe is different. And the, the, the expression of his, of his, of his difference uh, what, what does God say? He, first of all, he asks all three of them. He tells all three of them. So there's a sudden appearance, right? What we have, what we have in, in, in verse 4, um, after, um, after we've heard the basis of the story. Let me just run through the rest of the story very briefly. Then God suddenly said to Moshe and Aaron and Miriam, and there's that word, pitom, suddenly which comes, it sticks out like a, you know, it's a very, you don't expect that in the text. Pitom, what says, the Torah doesn't use um, sensationalistic language just for the sake, oh, it was sudden. It's a sense that there was something of a shock in this. Suddenly Miriam and Aaron and Moshe get a call from God and it puts them into some kind of a, a shock. And the shloshtachem, God says, the three of you, 
<laughs> interesting expression. The whole trio, all of you come out. And he takes them out to the Ohel Moed. And then he says to Miriam and Aaron, now you two come out of the Ohel Moed. He separates them from Moshe. He doesn't want Moshe to hear what he's going to say to Miriam and Aaron. And what he's going to say to Miriam and Aaron is the difference of Moshe, the fact that Moshe is quite different, that you all, you prophet, if you are prophets, you and all other prophets like you, um, use, use visions, use dreams, use riddles, use lots of ways to achieve revelation. You have all, you have all kinds of means and methods to arouse yourselves to become prophets, to be open to the prophecy of God. Moshe is different. Moshe doesn't have to work at it in any way because it's just part of him. Bechol beti ne'emanhu. In my whole household, he is, what's ne'eman? All right, let me, let me bring it in now, although I'd, I'd thought of it more for later. Bechol beti ne'emanhu. In all my household, he is faithful. So the Svatimet, it's later on your page if you want to glance at it, comes up with a very striking reading of Ne'emanhu. He says, what are we going to say? That the other prophets are lacking faith? If you say that Moshe is the one who is faithful? And Svatimet then suggests this, that normally when one has an episode of prophecy, if someone suddenly has an experience of revelation, it's a rush of blood to the head. It transforms and transfigures. The prophet, it doesn't know if he, where he's standing anymore. There is a feeling of their faces shine like torches, which is almost physically, I imagine. It. Suddenly, I really imagine that suddenly they must be flushing all over, a sense suddenly of this influx of inspiration. Suddenly, in some way, they have a connection with God, and it transforms them from head to foot. And they're more or less vibrating with it. They are changed by it. Whereas Moshe is always the same. There's a, a kind of strange, almost like bethos here. Moshe is so constantly attuned to God that it's no there's no episode. God can talk to him at any time. That's you find in Midrashic sources. Which means he's always on call. But it doesn't just mean to be on call. It means... And he doesn't really change particularly when God speaks to him because he's always attuned. Something that he is a specialized medium of some kind. He works differently. The whole prophetic dynamic works differently with, with Moshe. And so Ne'eman comes to mean something that's almost uninteresting. It's a sense of, no, he doesn't flush up and he doesn't get <gasps> dizzy. It's like, yes, that's what I'm here for. That's, that's, that's what the Lakach you know, I, I was I, I was created. I was created for this. Now, Svatimet, um, uh, to make the point, he says, in fact, unlike everyone else, every other prophet, Moshe has to wear a veil. You remember the veil story? He has to wear a veil unless he's actually talk, conveying prophecy when he lifts a veil. Why? Because he remains the same all the time. His face shines all the time. Um, and he just he doesn't want to to display that light um, unnecessarily, you know, uh, I don't know what the word I, vulgarly, let's say. And so he, that's why he doesn't change in himself when he gets prophecy. He changes his clothes 
as it were. So the other people should realize that now is the moment of prophecy. And when God first calls Moshe, it's all very interesting to think about this as a possibility. The extreme possibility of prophecy is that you are not prophetically transfigured. That you are, and it's almost a theoretical possibility. It's only Moshe. There never was anyone else like Moshe because all prophets are affected by prophecy. They do feel changed. So when God first calls Moshe at the burning bush, he calls to him, Moshe, Moshe. You remember? And you don't have a little line between the two Moshe's, which you tend to have otherwise. And so he says very smoothly, he says, because the higher Moshe and the lower Moshe, the prophetic Moshe and the everyday Moshe, there was no difference between them. They were all one. So Moshe, Moshe in one breath. It's not that you have to be called to the heights now. That in some way, that's where you are all the time. Now, that's the Swatimets reading. That's his suggestion. And it's clearly based on Kabbalistic, Kabbalistic sources. And I'm not going to dwell on it very far at this point. I just want to put it out there that there's a sense when, of, of in the competition, the, the prophetic competition between Moshe and Aaron on the one hand and Moshe on the other. God says to them, you don't begin to understand that he really is different. He is made different. For Miriam, this is unbearable. And so I want to go back to the story we haven't yet touched on. Where does Miriam really come into public view as an inspired woman, as a woman who is there as a leader, and in a leader and a public figure? And that's the middle of the three stories, right? The first one was the birth of Moshe and the protection of him. Then there was the Red Sea. There is the Red Sea, and there is the separate song of the women. We, we read about Moshe's song, Az Yashir Moshe, and Moshe sings, yeah, Ashira Lashem. Let me sing. I will sing to God, for he is very mighty. Kiga Oga. Ashira. Miriam and her women then come out, come forth. Miriam takes the timbrel, Vatikach et hatof, et hatof. You know, the timbrel, the one she obviously had to have. And which Rashi comments, have a look on your page. Um, it's a slightly whimsical comment, I think. Mm. I'm trying to find it. Number four? Okay. Hmm? Yes, right. Number four. Comments that these righteous women, all of them, had thought to pack timbrels. They're rushing out of Egypt. They can't let the bread rise. Remember, it's, too, it's all happening too fast. So the, they only have matzah, which is half-baked bread, you might say. Uh, but timbrels that they had to pack. Why did you know, women being always practical? Uh, why did they have to pack? Because they said, God does miracles. It doesn't say God will do miracles for us. Hakadosh Baruch Hu oseh nisim. There's something very down to earth about it. Something very grounded. We can almost depend on God to do miracles, and we're going to need to pin to celebrate. 
we're going to need the timbrels, obviously. So a woman has to be always prepared. So they, they bring the timbrels with them as a matter of course. And so you have that sense of the timbrel. Oh, you know, of course, the, the timbrel. And they come out in, with timbrels and dancing, macholot. And then Miriam sings her song, which is different in one significant detail. And that is that she says, Shiru Lashem, Kiga Oga'a, not Ashira. Moshe sang, I will sing, and she sings, sing. Now, we are all going to sing to God. What, what can be made of that? So I want to consider, first of all, the role of women in singing. Women, women singing, celebrating. Now, in the ancient world, timbrels were fairly uh, de rigueur. You know, one had to have a timbrel, timbrels and drums and so on. That was a woman's equipment in that role of singing, especially public ritual, singing and celebrating and so on. It's very, it's very normal. Um, yes. If you look at the previous Midrash, and I'm not going to look at it in great detail, it's a long one, Number three, from the Talmud in Sota. What was the women's experience at the sea? When the women looked up, the Midrash says, and like everyone else, they said, Zekeli van Vehu. There is my God, and I will declare him beautiful. I will glorify him. Ze, Zekeli. It's like they point at God. They have a particular history. These women from Egypt have a particular history that gives them an, an intimate, and intimate is going to be an important word now, an intimate acquaintance with God, that they know God as no one else knows God. And that is that when they, when they conceived in the fields of Egypt against Pharaoh's decree, and they went through their pregnancies, and they went to give birth in the field in double danger, the normal dangers of childbirth and the danger of the Egyptians coming to watch and see what came out. Um, in that situation, there came, God sent someone from high above. You can find it in the Midrash there if you want to look for it. Or in other versions, God, God himself in his own glory came and acted midwife. Acted midwife, you know, literally, meaning that the women were aware that in their intimate experience, that God was involved intimately with the insides of their bodies. That what was happening was a possibility for coming through to life. Starting mitoch, starting from the toch of things. Starting from inside life. Franz Rosenzweig writes a great deal about this, about what it is to be in the midst of life and the challenges that that poses. And this is in the midstness of life, as women are giving birth, God plays an intimate role. He tidies them up. He cleans them up. He's, it's a feeling that he is the one who makes it all okay. He makes it all work. And so when God appeared over the sea, it's a wonderful, again, a whimsical point, I think. It's the women who recognize him first, says the Midrash. Oh, there's my God. It's that kind of thing. I think that's what the Midrash means. Oh, yes. And, you know, it's like, Shalom Aleichem. You know, I, I remember you. And it's not overawed in that sense. 
It's simply, yes, you were there for me. You, you, were, you were right there. And that intimate sense that women have, Miriam wants to celebrate separately. She wants to, to celebrate the women's particular role in procreation, in full life, full sexual life, and in the idea that the future and prophetic futures can be realized through these natural processes. And she is both this and that, right? She is both, you know, a girl from a normal family with normal family connections and so on, who turns out to be the sister, the big sister of a prophet, and is who is herself a prophet. And when it comes to it, she is the one who will lead the women in song. And when she is doing that, what can one say about that particular moment? That's when she's called Miriam Hanaviah, Miriam the prophetess. And that is the first we hear of the fact that she's got a history of prophecy. Now we're going to the, looking just at the surface of the text again. This is our first indication, and we have to ask ourselves, what, so when did she prophesy? And the Midrashic answer to that is what we've just, we've just seen. That's the classic answer. But what is she doing now? She's not exactly prophesying. It's something a little different. She is singing. And what is it about women singing? So I'm going to say something that's quite a leap now, as we move now into the heart of the story. Um, I'm thinking of, um, of a book by Stanley Cavell, who's a contemporary philosopher, called A Pitch of Philosophy. A Pitch of Philosophy. And it's about music. It's very largely about music, about singing and philosophy, about women singing in opera, very specifically, operatic singers. Cavell, uh, who, uh, I'm not sure, I think he's still alive. Does anyone know? Um, Cavell says this. Here, he remembers as a child asking his mother, who was a pianist, uh, why are operas so sad? And his mother doesn't really have an answer for him. And then he, later in life, he reads a book, it's very literary, he, sees, he reads a book by Catherine Clément, a French feminist philosopher, called Opera or the Undoing of Women. Opera, that's a sinister title. And what she suggests in a very straightforward but poignant way is that she who sings must die. That the operatic heroine is singing about a world in which she has no real place. She is inspired in some way. She is impassioned. She knows what love is and no one has any sympathy for it. Right, whatever it is, she is in a normal situation that you have very often in the world, but she has extraordinary capacities for suffering and for joy because she's an opera. You know, she's an operatic heroine. So she feels things much more deeply than you normally would come across in, in these stories. And she writes about force. She sings about forced marriages and about the pain of, of disregarded love and, 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 and families disapproving of, 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 one's, of one's inspired choices uh, and so on. And the woman, therefore, who exposes herself in this way by singing is exposing her desire, says Cavell, in the name of Catherine Clément, um, is exposing her desire and she is telling men something they both want and don't want to know. This is Cavell's very subtle way 
of saying something important, that men would love to know what is really going on inside a woman and what women really think about men and what women know about male, male desire. And men want to know this, but don't want to know this. Yeah, they're really quite keen to keep her quiet um, um, at, at the same time as... And let me read you a, a passage here while you can wonder what this has to do with Miriam. Um, yes, here's a sentence. Um, uh, Cavell talks about an encompassing sense of another world, another realm, flush with this one, a sense of being pressed and stretched between worlds, one in which to be seen, the roughly familiar world of the philosophers, and one in which to be heard, one to which one releases or abandons one's spirit, and which recedes when the breath of the song ends. So there are two worlds. There's a normal everyday world in which you're seen doing the shopping. And then there's the other world in which if people could only hear it, you are, you are singing. And you are singing about something different. You're singing about that other world, which is a mere half step away from this one. And it's very close to this one. It's Olam Habba, I'd almost say. It's the world to come which is always coming. It's always on the verge of coming, but it takes just a step to move into that passionate space. And then you may have to pay a very severe price for it because she who sings must die. That's why there's such a mortality rate of operatic heroines. You know, operatic heroines don't usually see the end of the story. Um, all right, I'm being jocular for a moment, but it's not jocular stuff. Um, to try to convey perhaps a little more of the meaning of this, let me put it this way. Uh, again, here's a film that you probably haven't seen either. Um, I, I'm just dropping names now. Um, it, the Double Life of Veronique. Yes. Anyone? <sighs> Great. Uh, the Double Life, again, A Double Life of Veronique. Very briefly, the film starts with a young Catholic Polish girl. It's uh, Kishlovsky, the Polish director. Uh, a young Catholic girl who is known to have a beautiful voice. And we sense that she's a very spiritual person. Uh, the way she, she looks at things and sees not just the obvious aspects of things. Um, and also there's a hint that she has a weak heart, which prepares us for the climax in which she is persuaded to sing, and she sings with full orchestra, very powerful, beautiful song. And her voice rises higher and higher and higher until she crashes to the ground. Everything cracks and she crashes to the ground and the orchestra, and, and, and that's, that's how she meets her end. And she has a double life in the sense that someone else, right, it's a mystical, a mystical twin, that someone else picks up her life in another part of the world. But that's not what I'm interested in here. It's that sense of the, the drive in music, that music can lead one through right, a great deal of suffering in music. There's a great deal of pain as well as joy. And the joy, says Cavell, can't be had without the pain. In the world of opera, you can't get the joy without the pain. Now, I think, I think that's all I want to say about this, although there's many more quotable quotes that uh, I would love to, maybe just one more. Our beyond, Cavell says, is not eventual, but always. Our beyond is not, as we think, eventual. One day I'll get to my beyond my olam haba, my transcendent place. No, it's always there. It's always beyond. It's always there if I will 
allow myself to move into that space. But then I might be stretched between worlds. Then I might find I, I can't hold it. Yeah, that, there's no way back. How am I going to come back at the end of the song? And so on. Um, what about Miriam? Why, why Miriam in this context? First of all, the tupim, all right, the timbrels, the singing. Secondly, why she called Miriam, according to the Midrash, right? It's an obvious but difficult uh, explanation. Because they embittered their lives in Egypt. The Egyptians embittered the lives of, the, of Bnei Israel. And we read, that's the word we, we read. Maror. Yes. They embittered their lives. And she was born just at that moment in the Holocaust. Excuse me. She was bit, born at the bitterest moment of the Holocaust. And so she's named for the bitterness. And you'll excuse me if I think that there is a connection between that kind of provenance, that kind of origin, and a passion for music. That is, that what comes out of that, one of the best things that can come out of that, is a genius in some way for music which somehow allows you to redeem the bitterness. That the bitterness is there, but one, one can, it can, can move it onwards in some way. That's another thing. And then, but the main thing I wanted to point to with you is the Ma'or Shemesh, number six on your page, which is, I'm going to have to paraphrase, but let's just have a glance at number five first. Number five. Famous, famous Midrash about the end of days. God in the end of days will be at the center of a dancing circle of the righteous. What will the world to come look like? God will be at the center, and all the righteous people will dance around him in a ring, a machol, a, a circular structure, and they will all sing, pointing their fingers to the center, their connection with God in the center, and they will sing the verse from Psalms, for this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will lead us almut. He will lead us beyond death. That's the first translation. Almut. What does almut mean? And the, uh, the Midrash gives you three possible meanings. So just, let's just put those on the table. It could be almut, beyond death. That in some way, the tzadikim are all really celebrating the fact that they have transcended death. But they are now in that further world and they've, got, they've moved between worlds. They've moved there. Almut could be a reference to Alamot, young girls. Alma, which is a reference to Miriam. Vatelecha Alma. Miriam is called an Alma when she goes to find the wet nurse. For, in other words, young girlishness. All these tzadikim are dancing like young girls, which means with a certain bounce, with a certain hopefulness, the spring in their step, and alma. Zrizut is the word that's used, that Rashi uses. It's a certain vigor. Yeah. So on the one hand, death. On the other hand, erotic vigor. Yeah. And the third one is olamot, between worlds. Olamot. From this world to the other world. And so all, what I especially treasure here is the sense that all the tzedekim in their, in, their, in their circle dance here will be like young girls. They'll all be gendered feminine in, in some particular sense. Although I assume at least half of them, let's say half, half are, are not feminine, yes. 
but the idea is here that there's something feminine about this, what can we call it, this image of the world to come. And this is where the Ma'or Vashemish, 19th century Hasidic commentary, comes in and makes this suggestion. I'll try to say it as briefly and simply as possible. What he says is that Miriam, in her circle dance, that she leads the women in, it's called a circle dance, a machol, that's the, uh, with, with the timbrels, she is now, in some way, enacting that ultimate dance. That is, it's a mystical, a mystical notion here, that that ultimate dance, which is supposed to be ultimate, it's a dream of the world to come, in the world to come that you will have that sort of apotheosis, that climax of all desire and all this worldliness and other worldliness, and it'll all come together in one, one, one glorious circle. Moshe says, Ashir al Hashem. That's not for now. Now is the time of hierarchies, of teachers and students. This especially emphasizes that, where there, you need to teach other people to fear, teach other people the word of God. And he quotes from the Pasuk from Yirmiyahu, that what will happen at the end of days, as what will happen then, nekeva tisovev gever. The female, the feminine, will move around the male. There's a sense there that in the end of days, there will be that circular motion. Um, like at Achupa, where the, where the woman makes a circle around the man. And it, there's something a little aggressive about it. You know, if you look it up, if you look up the word to sauver, it really means, in a way, it's as if she's twisting him round her little finger or some, something like that. It's something a little manipulative about it. In other words, it's not a, a passive female role at all. And that will be at the end of days. And what will that mean in the end? Of, what, how, how is that to be, to be worked out as, as part of the end of days? In a moment, I'll find the quote. I've lost a page. Just a minute. Yes. Lo yilamdu od ishet rayehu. No one will teach the other person. People won't have to teach one another. Or or lemor duot Hashem to know God. Ki kulam yeduoti because everyone will know me from their smallest to their greatest. Now, that is an egalitarian vision. Uh, Nehemiah Polin calls it radical egalitarianism. That is, that everyone will have equal access to the center, everyone will point to the center, and no one will have to teach anyone, anyone else. There'll be no higher and lower. There'll be no male and female. And the Ma'or Shemesh makes a great deal of this. There'll be no male and female. That is, you won't have these binaries at the end of days. That's not for now, thinks Moshe. Now is definitely a time in which we do have male and female, and we do have, and here I'm thinking in terms of strength and weakness. The man is the stronger one, and the weak, and the woman is the one who is who who, who is supported uh, by him. But in the end of the day, is it won't it, it won't be like that. That is the ultimate that, that one can conceive, the ultimate experience that one can conceive of, says the Ma'or Shemesh. That is the light than which there is nothing brighter. He has different ways of saying it. That's the mystical apprehension, and it isn't a matter of a straight line in which you try to proceed up the line to climb the ladder, to try to get higher and higher. It's on the, on the contrary. It's, that, it's the circle dance. 
in which there is that feeling in which, you know how it is when you are dancing on Hoshana Rabbah or on Sunkhat Torah. He actually mentions that as an example. That's the secret of a dance, Sod. The secret of a dance is that the feminine mode is prevailing here. And the feminine mode, paradoxically, is beyond masculine and feminine. That is, it's beyond those specific roles. It's something cosmic. It's something, what do you say, oceanic. It doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to definitions and to, and to hierarchies. Moshe is very clear that that's not for now. Well, it's an ultimate vision. Ashira Lashem. And Miriam holds Shiru Lashem. Sing now. And she draws that ultimate vision down into the reality. Betoch into the reality of life, at least for as long as the song and dance last. That is, the song and dance become a kind of mystical experience. Now, you know what it's like when you dance in a circle, that you're almost pulled off your feet. You know, suddenly you are part of something beyond the individual, beyond any rankings, beyond the normal structures. And suddenly that, there's a sense of what I'm calling the oceanic. You know, some, it's something beyond this world. Miriam insists on having it now. Mashcha, himshicha. He drew that, she drew that down as people of spiritual power can do. That's her spiritual power being expressed in this moment. She changes the reality of the women who are dancing and she creates something in this world which can't be uncreated now. Now it's a possibility. Um, in, the, in saying this, the Ma'or Shemesh is doing something unrepeatable. No one else talks like this. And she is saying, he is saying, that Miriam is greater than Moshe in this. That Miriam has gone beyond Moshe. Moshe is only, he's cautious. That's only for the future. But Miriam want, makes it real now. Now, in general, traditional, traditional Hasidic writers will not say that. He himself doesn't say it in his other interpretations of the same of the same issue. But, but he does find it in him to say it on this, on this one occasion, that there is a sense, a sense in which Miriam's prophecy, Miriam's prophetic power, does transcend that of Moshe. But what happens in the end? And we have to bring it now to an end. What happens in the end? And I have, I'll try to, to make it as brief as possible. You remember, suddenly, you read, Vehinei Mitzorat. <coughs> God is angry with both Miriam and Aaron. And then he says, how is it that you haven't been afraid to speak against my servant Moshe? And I'm reading that against and over-merged with, yes, over-immersed over with my servant Moshe. And God was angry with them, bum. His anger burned against them. And he went away. And then there's a cloud. And there is Miriam, Mitzorat Kashelik snowy white with tzorat, which is usually translated leprosy, but it's very clear now that it doesn't mean leprosy at all. It doesn't, it's not the disease that we now know as leprosy. It's a, it's a, socially, it's a socially engineered disease. Right? It's, a, it's a disease, let's say, of perhaps partly of suggestion for people who have misused language, who have used language in such a way aggressively. And Miriam, in her over-concern with Moshe, has somewhere overstepped the line. Her greatness and her sense of being so invested in her knowledge of her own power, 
of our knowledge of her own prophetic power and the power to, to re-inspire the world, has led her to speak in a way against Moshe, in which he is then punished. Here is the punishment, which is the punishment for Lashon Hara, which is she's suddenly snowy white, like in a way dead flesh. And Aaron then turns round to Miriam and behold, Mitzorat. Aaron turns, Aaron turns around and he sees her. She's in this condition. And the word Mitzorat is used twice in the, one, in the one verse. And again, it's like all the doubles in the story. Things that mean the opposite. Or think, why are we told twice about the Ethiopian woman? Why are we told twice that she, that she is leprous? Once is in the eyes of Aaron. What Aaron sees, presumably, is the physical symptoms. But the first time it's used, here is the translation of the Hermic Davar. What does it mean to be, to be mitzoraat? This is his, these, are, these are the words he uses. He sees her that she is mvuhelet v'ne'elma dumia mirov tsar. That she is thrown into shock and dumbfounded, she can't say a word, in her distress. How, how do you get that emotional, that almost traumatized sense about Miriam? The word mitzorat is translated in Aramaic, sgiru, to be closed in. Sorat, this disease, has to do with a condition of being locked into yourself. It's almost as a kind, as a variant on that terrible disease that's called locked-in syndrome. It's not paralysis, but it's being in some way completely separated from the world. And suddenly there is this tragic moment in which her internality, her subjectivity, suddenly is felt in the text. She is distressed to the roots of her because what's in question now is her whole life. Her whole life, in a way, has been moved by a certain principle and a certain ambition and a certain sense of herself, and suddenly God is saying to her, you know, there is something that is higher than you. Now, I, I hesitate to use the expression, because, of course, that's part of this world. To say that someone is higher than someone else, or his quality of prophecy is higher than someone else, that belongs to this world. That's what critics do. Critics assess who is the greater composer? Yes, um, I have a friend who is here in the audience now who really knows about music, who tells me that if, when you listen to, to, to really great composers, regardless of the interpretation, regardless of the performer, you can hear that this is different from that. In other words, that this comes from a higher place. Uh, this is the real thing. What you're, you know, if you're listening to right, the people, that musicians, composers also come on different, on different levels of power. And here the classic view is being corroborated, and here is Miriam now, shocked into herself, silent. Now this is the woman who could always speak. This was the, the, the one who had things to say. And suddenly there is this sense of istager. Uh, in the Talmud, the description of being, I was locked, he was locked into himself, means to be engrossed, to be, to be bewildered, not to know yet what to say. And so what Miriam is now led into, and I'll finish with this. Um, I think we have about five minutes still. Um, what Miriam now wants to, what she is led into, is into a moment of deep introspection. 
she is now inside herself and she doesn't know what to say. There's nothing comes readily to... to and that is, a, is a, an appalling moment, mevuhelet, a shocking moment for someone who always knows what to say, yeah, for whom words come in an inspired way. Yeah. It's a shocking moment and it can be a redemptive moment. That is, it's a moment in which her bewilderment now leaves her alone with herself, not looking outwards, not looking at Moshe, not comparing, not being over-merged with anyone else. And she spends seven days like that outside the camp, which is on, a different, on that level. That's the punishment for, for the leper. Who, she's in a state of hesger plus. That is, she is, she is now quarantined from the camp, but it's not an intermediate phase. Only for her it's intermediate. For her, it's a time for being in herself and thinking through, what do I now think? What, how am I going to take the fact that in spite of my greatness and perhaps because of the greatness that I, that I was given, somehow I ran into turbulence. I lost my, 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 my the word I want, the weather vane or the, the direction, yeah, the, the sense of... Now, is that a defeat for her? That's one way of looking at it. I want to say it's not a defeat. What makes it very much not a defeat is the way that God commands. He says, yes, she should tisager, she should be closed off from the camp, outside the camp for seven days. But the people will not travel until she has been gathered back into the camp. And the idea of being gathered back, ne'esaf, it means to come home to society afterwards, after the period of meditation, after the period of badad, of, of that kind of really terrible loneliness. But it's a terrible and profound experience. And the people wait for her, and the Midrash makes the analogy very strangely. She waited for her brother by the river. That is, she waited there by the river in some kind of limbo, not knowing how things would, would work out, just waited and waited to see what would happen with her brother. And now the people wait for her with the same sense of connection that they want her to, to rejoin them. And only after the time is over, achar te'asif. And the word achar is, is repeated again, meaning that a process has to be gone through. And Miriam, in some way here, is given the greatest gesture of respect at the very moment of her shame. Right? It's, it's a moment of public shame. There's no, there's no blinking that. But then there's the respect that comes with it for a woman who, whose greatness everyone recognizes, and a woman who will bring afterwards for this people a well of living water that will accompany them wherever they go. After she dies, this well, it's a rock that rolls with them. It's a hard thing, something stony, but it gives living water. And that is, in a way, what she will be to the people once she has gone through this, I would say, tormented experience. It's a very difficult experience of isolation. The isolation uh, on Miriam is something that, interestingly, leprosy, Moshe was also struck leprous, you remember, at one point. There's something about the heroes of this book that makes them this is the Mea Shiloach, and with this I will finish, that the heroes of this book are also 
the ones who anger God. There is something about the wilderness and the way it affects even our great people, Moshe, Aaron, everyone sins. Everyone sins in the Midbar. And Miriam is one of that, that central group there. I think it hurts us more than it hurts than the other two. You know, when I read that Moshe and Aaron sinned, I can take it better. But with Miriam, you know, I'm rooting for her. You know, I, I want her to be perfect. And she is not perfect either. And so um, I'll finish with this uh, rather sober quotation from Kohelet. There is no righteous person on earth, right? This is a, just a, an absolute a statement. It's not a bitter statement. It's just a statement. There is no righteous person on earth who does good and, and doesn't sin, who only does good and doesn't sin. And the wonderful reading of this by Rabbi Yosef Albo. He reads it. There is no righteous person on earth who in doing good doesn't go wrong. That is, doesn't miss the mark somewhat. That is, just when you're doing your thing, you know, just when you're doing what you're good at, just in doing what you're great at, the idea somewhere is that missing the mark is part of the human, it's part of the human program. It's, it's part, of, part of how it goes. And it's the process that that leads to that's the important thing. I don't want to use the word tshuva here. That's not, not the, uh, the right word. But there's a process somewhere of inner recuperation that happens afterwards, which is more valuable than being perfectly, right, perfectly righteous. So perhaps I should give up trying to, to defend Miriam against all callers and accept the way it is, which is the way it is for everyone on earth, every human being on earth. Thank you. Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. Pardes Live in miniseries featuring Dr. Aviva Zornberg is presented by the Sydney and Miriam Brettler Memorial Series 5780, Women in the Wilderness, Four Narratives of Spiritual Power. For more digital content, please visit elmod.pardes.org.